This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 85. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and both of us, both Kyler and I, are with Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys. And this podcast is about everything related to digital transformation, so everything related to the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. We have a great episode for you today. And by the way, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms that you might be listening to podcasts on. So be sure to check us out there. Uh, I've got a great show for you today. We're going to start off the segment with some hot topics, um, including European air, European railways using AI to battle delays and to, to run their business. So that'll be a, an interesting case study or a use case and how AI is being used to improve organizations throughout the world. We're going to provide a digital transformation case study with Verizon Business. We'll talk about augmented reality contact lenses, which uh, is super cool and frightening to me all at the same time. And then finally, within those hot topics, we'll talk about retail within the metaverse and uh, talk about what's happening in the retail industry within the metaverse. And then later in the show, after our hot topics, uh, Kyler I. Kyler and I are going to unpack this concept of digital transformation risk management, how to identify risks, how to mitigate them, what to do uh, when you encounter risk, what some of the common risks are within transformation. And we're actually going to talk about uh, somewhat of a, a framework that we use here at Third Stage to help organizations identify and manage their risks. So stay tuned for that segment. We'll, we'll talk about digital transformation risk management. And then later in the show, finally, third, uh, the third segment of the show We'll be with Brad Feeks, who will talk about uh, the topic of journey to the cloud. And it's a presentation he actually gave at the Digital Stratosphere Conference a few months ago. It was an online event, and you can actually view all of the sessions from that event at stratosphere2022.com. But in this episode of this podcast, we're going to play you a presentation or a keynote that Brad gave. Uh, Brad Feeks, by the way, is the uh, president of a company called Estes Group which is a cloud management, uh, a cloud and managed service provider. And he's going to talk about how to make that journey to the cloud. So that'll be a great conversation that we're looking forward to. But before we get to those other segments, how about some of these hot topics you've got for us, Kyler? Absolutely. Well, an interesting um, case study by, um, it's L-N-E-R, um, I believe it's called. Um, so I'm not sure if they say, they say it. Um, with the acronym, but basically what it stands for is London Northeastern Railway. So what they've done is they've leveraged AI and predictive analytics to combat a lot of the current um, challenges within the travel industry. So some of the things that they've done is they've created an avatar that's dedicated um, to a booth at the station that customers can actually interact with 
and book through so they receive the most up-to-date information on their itinerary, their trips, any delays, or anything like that. Um, they also utilize predictive analytics to, um, to actually offer the customers a service to rebook via historical data. It's called quantum is what the, the actual technology is called. And it processes a huge amount of historical data that can help employees automatically reroute train services in the event of any disruption um, to minimize that impact on customers. Uh, so those are, are two of kind of more emerging technologies that we haven't seen uh, globally kind of mainstream yet to combat the challenges of long waits at train stations. Um, and here in the U.S., we've struggled a lot with airline travel has been a main topic of conversation on on our government side. So wanted to um, just get your thoughts on that, Eric, on um, utilizing these technologies within a service industry that has historically been a challenge in customer service and execution. Well, I think it can only help. I mean, I don't know that it could, it could get much worse <laughs> when it comes to uh, reliability and on-time performance, but I think it's it's pretty cool because if you think about the transportation industry, public transportation of any sort, whether it's airlines or railways or whatever, there's just so many variables that factor into what could cause delays. And so if there's ways to anticipate or to uh, either anticipate expected delays and or anticipate potential risk or variation within expected times or performance times, then I think that that can only help. So I think it's a it's a great move, especially if you could use it. I don't know if this use case goes this far or not, but if you could, for example, use weather, you know, third party weather information to know that it's going to snow or it's going to be icy or whatever, um, could you use that data to then inform what your schedule is or how you manage uh, different assets within the transportation system? Um, I think if you do start thinking really outside the box of managing data in that way, it could be it could be a game changer within that that industry and other industries as well. Yeah, I think the transportation industry is such a data-rich industry that hasn't really, at least we've seen on the customer side, been leveraged, um, especially with, you know, the introduction of new smart airports or um, customer direct through app user interfaces, those types of things. Uh, so it seems to be one of those industries that's very, very slow to undergo digital transformations. Yeah. Yeah. And that's hence the, probably the reason why there's so many delays and problems in the transportation space right now. Well, hopefully it only goes up from there. Um, we'll keep an eye on how, how that works. I think uh, obviously the European marketplace is a, a very sophisticated travel system that definitely has not translated here into the United States. So uh, lots to learn from our European partners over there um, yeah, as well. Absolutely. Um, speaking of kind of that emerging technology, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, this augmented reality contact lens, the only replace phone screens. So basically, this is a Silicon Valley startup. They're called um, Mojo Vision. They um, they uh, kind of marvel in engineering around um, hardware, and they have produced a contact lens that. Um, basically acts as a phone screen in your eye. You put it on, it goes a little bit over your iris and you can look at different things and just the vision cues activate what you would think would be a functional click on something or a tap on your phone. 
And it's really an interesting new um, ingenuity because it not only took the device hardware of the chips, but also had to develop its own chemical and plastic compounds that would allow it to actually go within a human or an animal eyeball um, covered with electronics, right? So that's kind of scary to think about putting that in your eye. It can also act as a, a digital teleprompter. So I thought that would be interesting to ask you about since you do speak on many global stages when it comes to thought leadership and digital transformation. And how would you feel about having a a contact around you that might be able to give you data about um, audience questions or teleprompter content? I know you're not a teleprompter user usually in general, but um, it would be kind of interesting to have that opportunity. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think it's, it sounds pretty cool. I mean, it uh, devils in the details, obviously, but I think if you could have access to a teleprompter or notes, you know, imagine if you had, if you could just see notes that you could refer to, I, I feel like that for me personally, that might be really distracting too, though. Um, and it might be mental overload as I'm trying to speak or think or do whatever else you're doing at the time, but I could see some, some real world benefit to it too. But you were saying this, it's not just for limited text, like a teleprompter type situation. You're saying it could be for like to replace your entire cell phone or computer monitor? Yeah. So a lot of their testing have been with GPS coordinates. So if you're driving or, you know, in some sort of moving vehicle, you're able to see, think of it like a Google Maps or an Apple Maps or a Waze or those types of different GPS-based applications directly in your eye. And you might look over at a gas station and it tells you that gas station has a five-star rating, those types of different things that typically would showcase your um, phone information, um, but it would be directly on your eyeball. So. Yeah, that's super interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm still getting used to the fact that I, um, I I wear contacts and I'm at the age, or I've been at the age now for a few years now where I, I'm, I'm getting um, where I need bifocals, basically. I, reading up close is hard for me. So I have contacts that are bifocal or multifocal, whatever they call it. So I'm still getting used to a dual purpose contact lens. So this is a whole nother animal you're talking about where it's not just doing two things. It's doing a little bit of everything. It sounds like uh, beyond yeah. eyesight type stuff. Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting thing. And I'm on the polar opposite side. I've never worn any eye enhancement um, glasses or, or um, contacts. So the thought of even touching my eye completely freaks me out. I, I don't even, uh, that would be a huge barrier for me to get over. <laughs> Yeah, I've been wearing contacts for like, I don't know, 35 years probably. And it I still don't like it. I don't like touching my eyes either. But yeah, well, but it, it is it, interesting though. So you're kind of forcing people to get used to it though. So oh, I mean, yeah. that's just a change management thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think we're still probably adapting to the AR, you know, actual headsets and see what that looks like. And this might be a way to kind of mitigate those consumers that are not comfortable putting something on that completely covers their line of vision. Um, as yeah. well. So it's it's an interesting um, new development in that hardware piece. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of interesting you think of, and this is much easier said than done, but we can get chips for um, devices in your eye, but we can't get chips to manufacture cars. So it's, <laughs> you right. know, it's another kind of supply chain um, phenomenon when you kind of own the technology just domestically, you have much more innovation capabilities. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of innovation, let's go into the metaverse because we're just going for it today. We went 
from AI to predictive analytics to contacts and devices in your eyes all the way into the metaverse. So um, we've been talking about kind of real world applications for the metaverse and trying to give more tangible examples of business in the metaverse. So I wanted to share some developments in the retail industry that we've seen move into a more virtual reality that you are actually purchasing a physical good, right? Um, so with the use of AR and VR, um, we, we look at brands like Ikea, and Ikea is a, a larger um, furniture retail home goods brand. Um, and in June 2022, it actually lets users scan their current room, delete furniture, and visualize what they'd see with Ikea-placed furniture. Um, and what that looks like in 3D. So they're able to actually measure the room and be able to put furniture in there and kind of try before you buy, if you if you um, follow me. So uh, some other industries specifically in, in, um, in retail, specifically the beauty industry has really gotten into the metaverse. It allows customers to try on um, specific lipstick colors, um, specifically Lancome and L'Oreal. And you're allowed to try it on and see the more colors accurately with your skin tone. And lastly, um, Nike's Air Force Ones, which are a very popular retail brand when it comes to shoe wear. Cons consumers can change the colors and change the materials for 13 different pairs of their sneakers to see what they look like on your actual feet. And then the integration to buy is very seamless uh, to be able to enhance that experience. So that kind of just showcases the ability to not only purchase through the metaverse, but also share to your networks, whether it be social media um, or friends and family, those types of amplification methods as well. So some definitely some interesting um, developments in the retail industry when it comes to virtual and um, augmented reality. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I, I did a video on my YouTube channel a few weeks ago, or it was published a few weeks ago, about um, just what is the metaverse. And in that video, while I was doing the research for it, I came across, and in fact, I might have actually, we may have talked about it on the show. That might be where I got it, was the uh, the BMW and Siemens industrial metaverse. Did we talk about that on the show before? No, I don't think so. Not that I recall. Okay. So in my research for that video, I came across this uh, article about how BMW and Siemens were partnering to create an industrial metaverse. So you're talking about sort of that business to consumer uh, use of the metaverse, which I think is maybe a little bit easier to envision how you can use it just in the, especially in those examples you just gave, but even BMW and car manufacturers and Siemens uh, more from a B2B collaboration and product design and product development perspective are trying to figure out how they could use the metaverse to collaborate more and be more innovative and sort of test or pilot products as they're being built in the metaverse in, in an augmented reality sort of a way. So I don't fully understand how that's going to work uh, in, in reality or how they're using it in reality, but it is uh, it, it interesting to see that not only in retail and business to consumer, but also business to business, it could be a good, uh, good opportunity in the future for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Especially on the supply chain side, as we, um, you know, experience different materials being utilized to make different vehicles or, like the chips or um, tires, those types of different um, pieces that might be an opportunity to kind of test those in a virtual um, environment as opposed to having to actually build it. Hopefully they do build it and test the car before we all get in it. But, you know, it's a good first step. 
yeah, that would make me feel better as well. But at least, you know, before they've tested it in real, in the real world, maybe they've tested it in the metaverse as well. So that's super, super interesting. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And then the last hot topic I wanted to share with you today, I thought was a very interesting um, case study about digital transformation from one of um, the the world's leading wireless carriers, Verizon Wireless. So basically, they actually surveyed their own um, executives uh, that are commissioned by Verizon Business. And a lot of those happen to be retailers. They are um, hardware manufacturers, all the things that go into a wireless business environment. Um, and they talked about the need to transform the employee and the customer experience uh, through talent acquisition and technology de development and maintain that long-term change through digital tran transformation. So the interesting part about this is these are C-suite executives and the data here, um, they prioritize improving customer experience um, as their top strategic priority at 74% saying that was their number one priority. However, only a third at around 35% have accelerated the use of data to improve the customer experience um, through automation and being able to better serve their customers. And it, it showcases the, the challenge behind that is the concerning lack of digital skills in um, the executive tier, which is only about 33% of what would need to be proficient enough to lead a digital transformation. So I think this is a really interesting um, case study that a lot of organizations, especially bigger global organization experience, is just the lack of digital proficiency within executives to understand the need for creating a more digitized customer and employee experience. And I wondered if that was something that you had witnessed and maybe you could share how in your work with our clients, you help overcome that. Yeah, you're sort of touching on a bigger picture discussion point around uh, business value and how to get an ROI, you know, the true ROI from your technology investments, making sure you're getting the, the full value. And it is a challenge that organizations have. I, I mean, I think, unfortunately, too, too many organizations focus on more of your implementation metrics, like let's finish on time and on budget, for example, and less so on let's not only make sure we get the business value out of the investment, but also let's make sure we don't disrupt our operations to where we're losing customer orders or not able to close the books or not able to pay payroll, you know, things like that. And so you really have to think about that from a risk mitigation perspective, which is what you and I are going to dive into in a bit more detail in the next segment. Um, but it gets back to really that goal setting or, or that um, visioning of what this project means to the organization and what you want to look like on the other side of the transformation. Too many times organizations are focused on, let's just replace our technology and we're doing it because we want to future proof. We want to look at the art of the possible. We want to um, you remove the technical debt. All the drivers that we commonly refer to during digital transformation are relevant, but we have to take that a step further and really look at what what kind of tangible business value are we trying to get out of it? And how do we ensure that we're actually getting that value throughout the implementation? Absolutely. And I, I think it's kind of interesting because it's it's almost cyclical. We we want our leaders to be fluent in digital technology, especially our chief innovation officers, our, our chief digital officers, our chief technology officers. 
But then we also see um, in tandem this rise of this business technologist workforce that's more focused on the business side than the technical side. And they're kind of leading the charge around digital transformation because their skill set are able to wrap in things like the need for communication and understanding and organizational change management and cultural aspects. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy between the two. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. You you do have to combine the business and technology and organizational components all into one cohesive solution, which is ultimately what's going to deliver the ROI. Yeah, I think, you know, the interesting solve for me that I think is just so simple is, and I don't, in my opinion, executives don't need to be technology savvy, you know, to the level that that, you know, their overall execution team is, but they do need the ability to listen and interpret what that team is saying. So I think that is always the challenge is, especially in these bigger C-suite organizations, excuse me, there's a lot of ego. And I think that's the most interesting part. If that was all kind of just let go, you'd be able to, uh, you know, better trust your teams and achieve these digital transformations without, having to have, you know, hard technical skills, certainly easier said than done, but um, seems like that's a, a blockage that we often experience. Yeah. And it comes down to getting the right team that can cover all the bases and have that complete skill set. No one person is going to have it, but as you put a team together, that's, that's a, the right way to be thinking about it. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, I wanted to end with that one and kind of go to our um, conversation around um, quality assurance and r risk mitigation, because I think that's a good place to stop with that data and kind mm -hmm. of hear how um, we can we can look at risks and understand them and mitigate them before they become a very expensive restoration project um, for digital yeah. transformation. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a good segue to, to lead us into um, our conversation about digital transformation risk management. So we're going to Take a quick break. When we come back, uh, Kyla and I are going to dive into some key concepts around risk management, how to identify risks, how to manage them. We're going to take audience questions and, and kind of dive into this concept a bit more. We're also going to show a framework, uh, just a one-page summary of a quality assurance framework that we use at Third Stage with our clients, just to show you some of the dimensions to be thinking about. One of them, by the way, which is benefits realization, which we are, you were just alluding to. Um, as far as getting the ROI out of the system, but there's other, there's 12 other areas beyond that that we, we look at as well. So we're going to dive into all of that here in just a moment, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Who Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event it's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, 
um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 85. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And uh, excited for this next segment, this next conversation we're going to have. Uh, Kyler and I wanted to dive into this concept of digital transformation risk management and really just understanding what it is, how to mitigate risk, what are some of the common risks that organizations commonly face. And what is a framework that you could use within your organization or within your transformation project to ensure that you're mitigating risk? So to start, let's start off by talking about what risk management is and why it's so important. In general, if we start off, you know, I, I guess, you know, Kyler, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you think here too. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons why we want to have this live stream is, is to talk, is to, to address this because risk management is so important. And so one of the first questions we often get is why is it, you know, why is risk mitigation so important? And I guess to start it, it helps to think through what, well, let's think through some of the common risks that happen throughout a transformation. Um, you know, one of the, the first things that happens is you get into a, a transformation and you're, you're starting the early phases of a transformation. And, and two things that often start out at the beginning of a project are uh, unrealistic expectations and the team internally is not aligned. And this is something that, that goes way back to the beginning of a transformation. And oftentimes those two things, the lack of alignment and the lack of realistic expectations, those two things oftentimes end up being the root cause for a lot of other problems that happen throughout the project. And so the, then the project continues, you go through the implementation or the, the technology transformation, whatever it is you're doing, and those risks start to build up and they start to gain momentum in, in a negative way. And that creates a lot of challenges for for organizations. So um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the, the root cause or sort of where risk management starts. I'd be curious to hear from the audience, you know, what what kind of risks you typically face or what type of risks that you've encountered in digital transformations, or if you haven't been through one recently or haven't been through one yet, be curious to hear what risk you're concerned about within your organization or with, within within your project. So I guess, Kyler, maybe I'll, I'll ask you a quick question. You know, what are your thoughts on this this risk mitigation topic? Is this something that, that you think a lot about, you know, more on the marketing side as we're thinking about some of our best practices and thought leadership that we're we're publishing on a regular basis? Yeah, actually, it's a great timing um, because I, I wrote a blog just last week on assessing the quality of your transformation because I think a lot of times that alignment can be misinterpreted specifically when we're talking through, you could think that you're aligned, but an alignment isn't a journey. So including that um, within your overall quality assurance plan is so important because the number one reason we get involved in transformations a lot of times is because they have already or are close to the failure part. And the most expensive piece of that is the restoration when it comes to uh, coming in and, and fixing anything that's already broken. So I would say with, you know, everything 
um, this is one of the most important topics you can talk about as a leadership team or as a project team when it comes to assessing the risk of your organization or your organization's readiness to go through a digital transformation. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's hard for organizations to know if they're ready or they have a false sense of security that they're ready or that they've mitigated all their risks simply because they, you know, they're not necessarily seeing or feeling or uh, paying the price yet for some of the risks, challenges or the risks that, that the organization's facing. Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I think that's a lot of times um, the, the misinterpretation around risk management is it's very hard to forward think a risk that you don't have the, the competencies to identify. And that's not a negative thing. That's just, you know, a, a skill set that's specialized with experience um, throughout a digital transformation, which many uh, companies don't have internally, specifically with newer technology or emerging technologies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, you add to the fact that a lot of times your software vendor or system integrator or implementer is sort of putting on the rose-colored glasses and putting mm-hmm. a positive spin on how the project's going. And a lot of times the project may be going well from their perspective because they are building the technology the way they need to build technology. But you as an organization that's going through the transformation have to be more concerned about some of the 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 uh, the more granular nuances of transformation as it relates not just to the technology, but also the people, the process, the strategic alignment, all the other stuff that, that goes into it. So I think that's part of the challenge too, is you've got outside parties oftentimes feeding you this false sense of security and it becomes sort of an echo chamber of positivity of how great things are and organizations then it, it just further fuels that blind spot that you talk about. They don't have the capabilities to begin with to necessarily know what they don't know. And then you add to the fact that you've got outside parties telling you how great everything is and that creates a really a perfect storm of, of risk in my opinion. Absolutely. And, and you got to remember that everybody has priorities when it comes to a digital transformation, even internally. When you're sitting at an executive table, the CFO is really focused on finance. The COO is focused on operations. It's a very normal thing. But having that professional skepticism to understand the system integrator and the vendor have an agenda and it might not always be exactly what the business's agenda is. So having that ability to not only understand that and be aware of it, but translate kind of the industry jargon that you may not understand. And that's a lot of times the role that we play at third stage is just helping our clients say, you know, this is what they're saying. This is what they're asking for. But how does that actually align with your business objectives and project ownership, which that's the biggest risk involved in all of this is losing ownership over your project to an outside third party. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. And just to build on that, that point and, and you kind of, if we sort of slow play or replay a, a failure and how failures oftentimes happen, that lack of control and lack of ownership of the project will typically manifest itself in a way that causes the system integrator and the software vendors, the outside third parties to take control of the project. And that further fuels that misalignment because now you're not as aligned internally because you've got an outside third party sort of guessing for lack of a better word at what they think the transformation should be, which is not necessarily and typically is not aligned with your, your best interest. Um, and then you look at what happens throughout the implementation too. you know, one of the biggest risk factors that organizations think about 
is most top of mind for determining whether or not they're successful in their transformation is the overall implementation timeline and budget. And so if they can finish on time on budget, that is a measure of success. It's not the only one, but it is a measure. And when you have an outside third party that's sort of in control of the project, what ends up happening is that unhealthy sort of over-dependency on the outside party results in higher costs, typically because now you're paying more, the meter's running more for this additional support that they're often providing to compensate for the fact that you don't have internal ownership. Um, that's, that's one challenge. And then the other challenge is that misalignment we've talked about. That misalignment creates a lot of headwinds that slow things down and cause the project to, to slow down and sometimes come to a grinding halt um, because you just can't agree on what this transformation is going to be. Um, or, and or, there's a lot of resistance, you know, as a result of the fact that the, you know, the, the ownership doesn't have that, that internal ownership and control of the project. So all those things add up to implementation, timeline overruns, budget overruns, and certainly even more material is the lack of value you get out of the, the transformation at the end of the day, which is a whole nother set of risks as well. So yes, I so most definitely. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, it's probably a, a good time to kind of talk through tactically, you know, what, what that really looks like in identifying those risks and understanding where they might kind of reside in the project that a lot of times our client community doesn't know or isn't aware of. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, that's a good segue to, to sort of show, um, show a framework for how we typically identify some of these risks. And those of you that are watching this uh, visually, uh, this, this episode visually, I will show you a framework here uh, in front of you. And it's, it's, it may, hopefully you can read at least the headings of this, this framework. And this is a project quality assurance framework that we use at third stage with our clients. It contains 13 different areas that we typically will assess during a project. And it ranges from things that are really important early in a, in a project like procurement and project planning and getting the right project governance and controls in place. And then it includes other dimensions that are become even more important as the implementation proceeds. So things like uh, making sure you have business process alignment and you've addressed organizational change, master data management, testing, security, et cetera. And when you look at these 13 boxes with some of the details within it, um, some of the sub bullets within it, you see that there's a there's just a lot of different moving parts you have to think about with with the transformation. And so the challenge with transformation is having this global big picture view of a transformation and proactively identifying where these risks might be. And again, the, the challenge with this is because a lot of organizations don't have they just don't have the the knowledge to know or the experience and foresight to understand where these risks are. And a lot of times what happens is they wait until they actually feel the pain of the risk. And then by that point, it's typically too late. So just to give you an example, you know, one thing that often happens, you know, one dynamic that often happens is when you get into testing, a lot of times you get into testing and that's when you have the, oh, shoot moment as an organization, a lot of times like, oh, shoot, this is not what we envisioned, or this just doesn't fit our business. And there's all these problems. And there's no reason that you, that should all come out when you get to testing. Um, there's actually risks that have been building up along the way that should have indicated that these risks were there. But testing is just happens to be what brings it to the surface, because now you're getting into the software, you're getting more people involved, you're sort of running a mock, a mock up of your operations using this new system. 
And that's what exposes a lot of these risks and challenges. But the reality is if you have this framework in place and if you know how to use it, you should be able, you should be able to identify those risks earlier on so that you can mitigate those risks. Not to say that testing should be perfect and you're not going to have any issues during testing because you typically always will. And that's the whole point of testing. But what often happens is organizations just get blindsided, you know, as they go through the project. And in reality, they could have avoided some of those risks along, along the way. So um, that's, that's the general framework. I'd be curious to hear too from the audience, um, you know, what some of the common challenges are that, that um, they're experiencing. Um, and by the way, um, Kyler also dropped in the chat, she dropped a link to this framework. So if you want to download it, you can actually download the framework off of our website. And certainly if you're listening to the audio only version of this podcast or this episode, you can, you can use that to, to follow along or, or to get some, some additional uh, context to what we're talking about here today. Um, I'm going to come back to this in a moment. So I'll keep coming back to this, this one slide. But in the meantime, I wanted to turn to the audience here and just just uh, look at some of the, the comments or, or see where some people are joining us from today. Um, obviously, Kyler and I are here in the United States in, in uh, Colorado. So uh, happy fall to everyone uh, here in the in the uh, northern hemisphere um, or happy autumn, I should say. Yeah. Um, we also have uh, Oosh from uh, the UK joining us on YouTube. Thank you for being here. Uh, we have John joining from Germany in the midst of a D365, a Microsoft D365 digital transformation. So thank you for being here. Um, and then uh, just another example is we have Sean from Botswana. So thank you for, for joining here today. So really appreciate having you all on. And I know there's a lot of other people from other parts of the world. So love to hear where you're all from as well. And again, if you could just drop in the chat, what are some of the risks that you're most concerned about? What do you see as the biggest risks, either through your experience or through your expected risk as you enter a transformation, particularly for those of you that are in the midst of, of ones right now. So, I, you know, I guess maybe I'll, I'll sort of open up one question for discussion here, which is what is the biggest risk in a digital transformation? I'd be curious, maybe I'll ask you, Kyler, and put you on the spot. What do you think, just based on all the discussions we have day to day with clients and with our team and in these podcasts, what do you think the biggest risks are? What do you see as sort of those biggest two or three risks that, that percolate to the surface? Well, I'm so excited to be able to say it depends because it really depends on <laughs> take a note out of your, your book, right? Exactly. Um, my consultant answer. But I would say the, the biggest risks is not understanding what you're actually um, going through as an organization. So those specific organizational readiness assessments, um, those cultural assessments, understanding roles and responsibilities, project governance. If all of those things, those phase zero tactics are not executed before you start the project, you will constantly be at risk for a very costly mistake or just misorganization around the overall project. So I would say the biggest risk in my, my opinion would be not effectively planning a phase zero of your digital transformation. Um, so what, what about you, Eric, turning the tables? What do you see a lot of times as the biggest risk factors? Well, I think that that is certainly one I would say too, that I would agree with you on is the phase zero slash implementation planning phase mm -hmm. that that moment in time oftentimes gets glossed over in a transformation because you've typically at, at the point where you've chosen technology 
there's a tendency to want to just jump in and, and start going. Let's mm -hmm. just start designing, building, deploying technology. And it's good to have that momentum, that excitement, uh, that, that motivation internally. You don't want to lose that, but you also want to be smart and make sure you, you take the time to slow down early on because I, I think that's hard for organizations to think that through. Like if we slow down, that means we're going to delay the project. Well, actually, if you slow down up front, you're going to speed things mm -hmm. up so much more later yeah. on. It's actually going to be, you know, the net result will be a, a faster, better implementation. Um, so rather than just saying, I agree with you and you're right, maybe I'll add a couple uh, a couple other things to the list you're too. You're a genius. <laughs> yeah, you are a genius. Um, but I would, you know, I would say too, you know, uh, change management is always one, mm -hmm. you know, organizational change management, just because resistance to change is, is always a challenge. And no matter the organization, it's the one time I won't say it depends because um, most, most, if not all organizations have resistance to change. The only part that depends is what is, what is the source of the resistance and why are they resisting the change? Too many organizations falsely think or have the false sense of security that their team is totally on board because they're telling them that they're telling the executives that they are on board and, and chances are they are on board. I think that's the, the tricky part of change management is people look to sort of the, the sabotaging of the project as a, as a sign of potential resistance. That's usually not what it is. It's usually not someone trying to sabotage the project or someone just refusing to change. It's typically a lot more subtle than that. It's typically related to fear and loss and mm -hmm. the, the unknown and all that stuff. So change management is definitely uh, one. And then I'd say, you know, the uh, just ensuring the the overall strategic alignment and making sure that your internal team is aligned and that your transformation is aligned with the goals and objectives of the company. Because a lot of times the, the transformation ends up going a different direction than what the, the overall organization is trying to go. And that mismatch or that misalignment could create a lot of challenges and risks that's sort of like a domino effect uh, later on. Yeah, and in addressing that, Eric, I'd, I'd be curious if you could talk a little bit about a project health check, because I think that's one of the things that we that we think that, okay, I got my phase zero, I got my planning, you know, it's tightened up, it's ready to execute, but not understanding that this is a, you know, a two, three, four year project, right? Um, so what are the different touch points that you need to kind of recheck in to make sure you are securing that continued alignment and that your project is still on track? Yeah, so that there's a couple of ways that come to mind. One is it more the tactical level, which is making sure that you've got the project governance and the decision making parameters and things of that nature well defined and that you're executing to that at the tactical level. But then at the more strategic or the executive level, you want to make sure that the executives are on board and, and aligned with the project and vice versa. You want to make sure the project is aligned with what the executives are expecting. And if there is a mismatch between executive expectations and what's happening in the project, you need to reconcile that rather than just mm -hmm. forging ahead and hoping that, you know, we power through it and everything is going to be okay later on because they'll just sort of, the executives will just figure it out or we'll somehow get aligned later on. So you have to be real deliberate about it. And so I think having that more, the more frequent touch points with the executive team and the executive steering committee, um, that will ensure that you expose the areas of misalignment and rather than hide from it or ignore it, figure out what do we do now to get aligned. It could be that, you know, there's unrealistic expectations at the executive level. They think this project should be moving a lot faster. And so um, what do we do in that case? How do we do it? Do we just decide to move faster because the executives want us to, or do we try to re realign their expectations and manage the expectations of the team 
or at the executive team and, or maybe it's a combination of both. So I think that's the sort of way to think through it is, is, uh, in that way too. So those are a couple examples of that misalignment, the change management, all, all that sort of thing. And, and be able to do that health check, um, along the way to make sure that we've mitigated that risk, uh, is, is a great point to your, to your point. Absolutely. And, and some of these audience questions, we can kind of dig into talking through what that looks like from a system standpoint and then also an OCM standpoint, which, you know, is, is a huge risk factor that's not often not spoken about. Um, so I'm sure we can kind of look at those uh, and, and take the conversation from there. Yeah, absolutely. So John over on YouTube, um, John and I are aligned on, <laughs> on some of the... Uh, <laughs> Some of the biggest challenges here. I mean, he he, uh, and I swear I did not just copy your answer, John. But the, this is exactly what I said. The company company alignment alignment and willingness to change was pretty similar to what what I would say as well, as far as uh, the biggest challenges in a transformation. So thanks for that that feedback, John. Uh, great great minds do think alike. Okay, we're here talking about digital transformation risk management. We're going to continue the conversation with a lot more questions and conversation about that. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 85. I'm here with Kyler talking about digital transformation risk management and some frameworks you can use to mitigate risk within your transformation. You know, this is a, this is a really interesting one that, that I think is worth diving into. This is from Sean over on LinkedIn. Sean says, our biggest challenges in our market is the vendor bullying of enterprises and forcing them towards upgrades they are not prepared for. ERP cloud comes to mind. Sadly, our market is not ready. And... Um, Sean, I believe, is the one that is from Botswana, if I remember correctly. Yes. So that's Sean from Botswana. So presumably he's talking about the African region not being ready for cloud ERP. And I think that's a great point because mm -hmm. I think it's not just in Africa. I think that's a global problem where a lot of organizations are getting pressured into making decisions, whether it's cloud or, or otherwise. It could be something unrelated to cloud. But the point that, that Sean brings up is that the vendors have their self-interest, just like we all do and they're gonna to push to sell software. And a lot of times that, that pushing can get super aggressive. And in some cases, um, in my opinion, it almost feels like a, a hostage situation yeah. where they, they hold you hostage because they're, you're using their, their legacy system that they're just gonna to decide to stop supporting and uh, maintaining and putting any sort of R&D into. And they'll sort of force you into this decision of you either have to move to a new system uh, presumably our new system, or we're going to stop, we're going to stop supporting your product and, um, that sort of thing. So I think, you know, that's a really unfortunate, I think, and I think it's a highly unethical 
problem that our that our industry has is is I don't think any third party should be telling a business, you know, what they can and can't do or what they should do or how they should spend their money. But that's typically or that's oftentimes what's happening in the in the market today. So I think that's a really good point. That whole vendor bullying piece of it. I think you have to you have to be educated enough and sophisticated and savvy enough to know how to how to counter that. And I think that's a problem that a lot of a lot of organizations have. Well, yeah, because it's, you know, it's something that these vendors or system integrators do on a daily basis. You know, it's it's kind of how they um, they communicate. And um, we recently did a piece um, and I did drop the digital transformation in Africa um, white paper that we have that talks about emerging markets and the immersion of cloud technologies, um, those types of different things. So I definitely recommend checking that out if you are in specifically the EMEA area. Um, our team wrote that over there. That's really insightful for a lot of these these different, when you're looking at an on-prem solution versus cloud, but you might not have the infrastructure or the connectivity to support a cloud solution, um, how to have that conversation. Um, and then also, I'll just add to, to that overall insight of when you are in um, a situation where you're talking about an upgrade, I think it's so important to understand that an upgrade is not just what it sounds like. It's a whole transformation project in itself. So treating it like that, planning it for that and understanding with that professional skepticism that we always talk about, that an upgrade is not just flipping a switch. It's a whole transformation throughout the organization as well and should be treated as such. Um, so having the vendor downplay that as, oh, you know, we're just going to upgrade your system. That's not what that looks like. Roles and responsibilities change. Processes change. The technologies change. So that needs to be really considered um, within that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of that. Um, you, you look at the choice of words that vendors use a lot, mm -hmm. you know, and the word that comes to mind or a phrase that comes to mind based on what you just said, Kyler, is lift and shift. Yeah. yeah there's a, that choice of words is very deliberate. It's meant to suggest that we're just lifting your system, moving it into a new one. It, it's, it's a lift and shift and it, and it's, it's subtle, but it's really misleading and it, and it's, it mismanages expectations and back to the root cause of a lot of these risks of having unrealistic expectations. I think a lot of times it, it's the software vendors and or the implementation partners that are to blame for that because they're, they're helping contribute to the mismanagement of those expectations. You have organizations that don't know any better necessarily, and then you have third-party software vendors that should know better, but they're trying to sell software, so that you know creates an overly optimistic perception, or that's a perception they try to sell. So I think that's a, a great point. And into the cloud, we don't have to you know dive down the cloud rabbit hole, but when we're talking about risks and mitigation, is understanding the total cost of ownership when it comes to SaaS or cloud solutions is so important because not only in the contractual phase can there be a lot of hidden costs, but for even small to mid-tier organizations, understanding what that looks like um, because it, it could be something that is actually more expensive, but the, the cost structure is different to make it look like it's actually a savings when it's not. So getting someone that is an expert in what that cross structure looks like to actually come in and analyze if this is the best choice for your organization is a huge risk mitigation tactic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's one of the common <clears throat> risks we haven't really talked about yet is the mm -hmm. software evaluation and selection and making sure that you're choosing and deploying the 
the software that's best for you as an organization and really understanding even when you know and have confidence that it is the best technology for your situation, also recognizing that there are risks that go along with that. And so it's sort of a two-part thing that you've got to make sure you do well. One is choosing the right technology to begin with, but then once you've chosen the right technology, make sure you understand what you're trading off because typically you're just trading one risk for another um, when when you think about things like, you know, moving to a standard, you know, one one single ERP system, for example, if that is the path you're going down, that solves a lot of problems in terms of having an integrated solution now. You don't have to worry as much about data silos and just overall functional silos because you've got a single system. But so that's the good news. You, you've got some significant potential business value there. But the risk is now you've put more risk and more pressure on the organization to change. So that's that's a risk, right? Doesn't say doesn't mean that it needs to change your decision or your direction, but you have to recognize that now you've just created another risk. And what are we going to do to mitigate that risk? And that's the sort of thing that that all should happen early on as you're evaluating the technology and as you're deciding what your roadmap's going to be. You should also be thinking about okay, what are we going to do to mitigate these risks that we just created for ourselves? And most organizations don't think about that. They think they're solving all the problems and they're presumably solving more problems than they are creating new risks, but they are creating new risks. And if you don't mitigate those new risks, those end up exploding into bigger problems later on. Yeah. Like Mohammed said over here on um, YouTube, the um, business analytics or change management, those sometimes that's a very technical is the business analytics, right? But change management can often be seen as a soft science, but those two are very important. Uh, because to your point, when you bring in additional data or the data journey within an organization changes, um, you need to be able to understand the impact that that has on the employee. So many times when we go through process or data analytics, um, organizations are actually surprised by the data that they have or that their um, their workforce is consuming and using to make actionable insights. So though data is important, you need to have kind of that cultural organizational awareness of how it's going to impact your frontline workforce um, or how that's going to change the processes around it. And that happens with a digital transformation and an upgrade, but you need to map all of that out before you select the technology and understand that even go through it very clearly in the demo phase of selecting the vendor that's going to be the right partner for you. Yeah, that's a great point because no no vendor is going to be 100% perfect right. for what, what it is you want or need. And so you have to, again, recognize what the strengths and weaknesses are of that direction that you're going uh, for sure. Um, there's a couple comments coming through the chat that are related to SAP. That seems to be a hot button right now as it relates to this, the vendor bullying. Actually, that question stemmed from uh, someone who said they're they're um, in an SAP situation, and uh, there's another follow up here. I'm going to try and show it, although I don't think the the full question is going to show on the screen here. Um, so I'll read the remainder of it after I show you the beginning of it. Uh, but the question here is from uh, Danny on LinkedIn. Danny asks, "Would you please share some of your experience with companies going from SAP ECC to SAP S4 HANA? What are the major failures that you have noticed experience?" Or what are the major issues and failures that you've noticed and experienced? What do you recommend is done at minimum for better success? I'll, I'll maybe stop there and try to unpack that piece of it. 
And I might actually just, I'm actually going to generalize this question a little bit and not focus only on SAP. I think you can apply the same question to insert vendor name here um, yeah. because a lot of software vendors are doing this exact thing right now, which is sort of encouraging, if not forcing organizations to move from the legacy system that they may have been using for 10 or 20 years or however long, they're forcing that change into uh, a new technology for better or for worse. I'm not here to judge whether or not you should be moving to a new technology, but let's just assume that for whatever reason you are going to move to new technology, what are those challenges? And I'll be curious to hear what you think, Kyler, but the first thing that comes to mind is what you just mentioned a few minutes ago about, um, you know, sort of the, as we were talking about that lift and shift mentality. Um, that's the first thing you have to recognize is recognize that Kyler's point earlier about this is not just a simple upgrade, especially now that we're talking about going from on-premise to cloud, presumably in, in most cases, um, that is a, a pretty significant overhaul. And the cloud technology, you could argue cloud technology is better than on-premise. Let's just assume, I'm not going to agree or disagree with that, but let's just assume it's correct. Let's assume that cloud technology is better. And let's just assume that cloud technology from a technical perspective can be deployed faster from a technical perspective. And again, I'm not, I could spend an hour debating that point, but I'm not going to. Um, but let's just assume that part's true. Even if that is true, you still have all the heavy lifting that you have to do with changing your processes, changing your people, getting people on board and understanding these new processes, the way the new technology works. And that stuff doesn't get any easier just because you're moving to a cloud solution. So I think the key here is to recognize the reality of what you're doing. You're doing a re-implementation and there are risks that go along with any re-implementation. And so you want to treat it as such when you think of it from a risk mitigation perspective. But what are your thoughts, Kyler, as it relates to this whole concept of moving from legacy system to new system? You know, what are some of the major risks or, or failure points there? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, really, it should be a whole new evaluation process. If you're going to go with the incumbent vendor, that's great. That's awesome. Um, you already have that relationship there, but doing your due diligence as an organization to evaluate other systems in the marketplace is always something that we recommend just to be sure that you're selecting the best technology. Um, and so seeing it as that, as a new selection of a software is really important to ensure that you kind of check all the boxes of where you are in the marketplace. Because these, these legacy systems could be 20, 30 years old. And a lot has happened in the technology space since then. And uh, you're allowed to evolve as a business, right? Um, so understanding that that's something that you can consider. And I did pop in um, the chat on both LinkedIn and YouTube here, um, our guide to SAP S4 HANA implementations. And that does have a lot of the um, system-specific questions and risks in there. So I definitely recommend if you're interested in SAP S4HANA specifically, um, you go ahead and, and check that out. But that is a major transformation from that system. There's a lot of risks involved. So having a risk mitigation and quality assurance plan is going to be key to understanding and identify those before you experience an, expense, an expensive risk on that side. Yeah. Yeah. And the same can be said too. I know, you know, the focus of the question and the focus of the the guide that you shared, Kyler, is, is on SAP, but we have mm -hmm. a similar set of best practices and recommendations for Microsoft D365 mm -hmm. implementations, Oracle implementations, and others too. So we, you, if you go to thirdstage-consulting.com, which is our website, 
just go to the resource center and you can find all the guides we have, which uh, not only those three, you know, the guide to success for SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, but also just other white papers and reports out on their resource center. So be sure to check that out as well. Um, you know, another, uh, another question that's sort of related along the same thread here of, of vendor expectation setting and vendor bullying and um, mismanaged expectations, all that stuff. Um, this question is from uh, Sun over on uh, YouTube. And Sun, I, I'm not sure if it's Sun or Soon. I'm going to say Sun, but I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. Um, but the question or comment here is, digital transformation will be mandatory in the future? Question mark. Um, I think it's a really interesting question because uh, if you ask most industry analysts or consultants or others that um, are have something to gain by organ more organizations going through digital transformation. And this includes third stage consulting, by the way, I'll be totally candid. We're all going to say if, if we're acting in our best interest in our own self-interest, we're all going to say, yes, digital transformation is mandatory. Every organization should go through a digital transformation. And you just have to look at, well, who's going to benefit from that? The, the real people that are going to benefit from every organization in the world going through a digital transformation in the next three years or whatever it's going to be the software vendors. It's going to be the consultants. It's going to be the industry analysts. You know, all those people have a lot to gain. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. I don't buy the whole refrain that you have to go through a digital transformation. If you're not going through a transformation, then you're falling behind and you're going to fail as an organization. That fear-based marketing is highly effective, but it's not always reflective of reality. So I think you, you get you just have to take a step back and first of all, define the timing for your digital transformation. Is now the right time? I don't know. I couldn't tell you right now because I don't know your you know, business. For those of you listening, if you're not already a client, I don't know your business. Um, so I couldn't tell you. But even if the answer is yes, you should go through digital transformation, doesn't mean you have to go all in on a digital transformation. It could be more of an incremental phased approach or more of sort of a, a risk adverse or uh, an approach that's meant to mitigate risk or focused on mitigating risk. That's okay too. So I think it's just a matter of how you, you know, how you want to go about that. What are your What are your thoughts on that, uh, Kyler? Is is digital transformation mandatory? Should it be mandatory? Oh man, well, I would hate to be the one that enforces that, but I was hoping we'd get to that question because it's a it's a really complex question in the fact of what is a digital transformation. So if you're talking about a full ERP system, no, I don't think that would be man mandatory in the future. I mean, you could argue that ERP is going away as one kind of centralized system, and we're focusing more on things like. Um, interoperability and, and integration. Uh, but I think something that really um, resonates with me when you answer this question is just the digitization of the workplace, I think is something that I, as a business leader, would focus on as far as a, a risk assessment um, and a quality assurance piece to ensure that your culture or your organization embraces new technology instead of runs from it. And that could be anything from, uh, you know, a basic new technology that you're integrating into your internal workforce or work from home policies or those types of different things that you utilize a technology to, um, to help produce productivity around, uh, to understanding efficiencies within your organization and having the innovation and the culture of employees that are going to say, hey, I see this opportunity here. Hey, I see this efficiency piece here. Um, so for to me, I think that's going to be mandatory or, you know, a best practice, if you say, 
in um, businesses that are going to continue to grow because technology kind of creeps in to no matter what you do in personal and professional life in 2022. So understanding how that affects your organization's culture and just overall employee experience and customer experience, more importantly, is going to be key in um, in being able to continue to grow and excel. So that's kind of how I see it in more of a holistic standpoint as opposed to from an actual system standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And, uh, you know, I think there's certain, you know, certain industries that are being disrupted at different paces in different points in time. And it could be that certain parts of your business are being, you know, there's macroeconomic sorts of things happening in the background or outside the organization that may quote unquote force you or highly encourage you or, or lead you to a digital transformation. Um, but I don't know that it's going to be mandatory to your point, Kyler. I don't think it's mandatory that you do an entire systems wide mm -hmm. upgrade or enterprise wide upgrade, unless it's, you know, you're operating on something you've been using since the eighties and it's uh, just on its last leg and it's not, you're not scaling anymore, then sure. I get it. You, you, you probably are in a position where you feel like you have to do something and, and you probably do. Um, but some organizations, you know, if, they, if the system's good enough and, it, and it's working, you can take more of a piecemeal approach and more of an incremental approach. You have the, you have the luxury to do that if you want to, um, depending on where you are in the whole digital maturity uh, curve there. Yeah, especially with the emergence of those those best of breed technologies, you know, that's one of the kind of forks in the road that organizations come to in the evaluation process. If you have one area of the business that's really underperforming and suffering, but your business is healthy as a whole, that evaluation process is so important to understand all of the options within the marketplace. And that's really where Third Stage comes and supports our clients and adds value is just showcasing the options in a very saturated and complex marketplace. Yeah. Okay, we're here talking about digital transformation risk management. We're gonna continue the conversation with a lot more questions and conversation about that. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 85. I'm here with Kyler talking about digital transformation risk management and some frameworks you can use to mitigate risk within your transformation. This is from Matt over on YouTube. Matt has a comment here, which is the risk I see is how we can measure the ROI compared to the value delivered. And this is a great point because, mm -hmm. and we haven't touched on this yet. You know, we've talked a lot about, when you think about risk, a lot of times you think about how do we avoid failure? You know, how do we ensure that this doesn't turn into a massive train wreck of a, of a project? 
and that's no a noble goal. You want to make sure it's not a disaster. That's that's great. I'm not saying <laughs> let let it happen, but um, you do want to uh, mitigate that risk. But if you want to really get to the next level, and what organizations should be thinking about is not just how do we avoid failure, but how do we get the ROI. I mean, that's really if you think mm-hmm. about it, what we should all be focused on with digital transformation is let's not just invest in technology for technology's sake because we have to or because the vendors forcing us into the situation. Let's do this in a way that maximizes the ROI. And so I think that's a great point is the under realization of business value is, in my opinion, probably the biggest risk on a project because the the money that organizations leave on the table after spending all this money on a transformation, they fail to recognize the benefits. To me, that's a, a, it's almost a travesty. It's pretty tragic that an organization would do that. Yeah, it is. It, it's absolutely tragic. And that, you know, that's such an important point is understanding how to maximize business value and understanding really what we call, you know, the third stage of that digital transformation um, through user adoption strategies and understanding how you're actually going to realize and optimize the value that the new technology um, delivers while identifying those key metrics. You know, what are those metrics to to success is it ROI? Is it less process? Um, is it leaning out process efficiencies? Is it getting your product to your customers faster? You know what is the the key to success there for your organization? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, if I if I take us back to this mm-hmm. uh, the graphic here um, of our our quality assurance framework, which is meant to identify and help mitigate risks in, in a transformation. You see that the the bottom right, the last box here is benefits realization mm-hmm. and performance. So how do we ensure we actually get that value? And even though it's the last box listed here, and a lot of times organizations think that, well, let's just worry about that later. You know, once we go live, then we'll figure out how we're going to get more value out of it. You should do that to some degree, but you should also be spending time during the transformation, making sure that you're making the right decisions to help maximize value. Um, and maybe even more importantly, cutting those decisions or cutting from scope things that don't add business value. That's a, that's a really important one too, because mm-hmm. too often organizations just go all in on, on a technology. They buy all these modules and seats and licenses that they don't need, and it ends up being wasted costs that they can't justify with business value. But they, in their minds, they think, well, we got a great deal. The software vendor gave us a great deal to go buy all the software that we're never going to use. Um, okay, well, you bought it. Now you've got to figure out how to deploy it. And if you're not going to deploy it, then don't bother buying it just because you got a good deal. So that's the sort of the way to think about it. But that benefits realization piece is, is really important for sure. Absolutely. So, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, and, and that brings up that, that um, you know, feared technical debt. And the, the more of those kind of bolt-on applications or those systems that you were sold as a specific module, that also ups your cybersecurity risks, which we know is something that is a, a huge initiative. Um, and we talked about it on our ground control episode a few weeks back about the cost, the average cost of you know a, a cybersecurity issue or hack or phishing scam or those types of different things. The more applications and technology that you own, the more you need to be able to protect that and protect the data within your organization too. So considering that as a risk in this conversation um, is something that that needs to happen as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and just going back to the 
to the quality assurance framework, you'd see that they're uh, somewhere on here. I'm, I'm having trouble reading it with uh, my old eyes or my aging eyes, but uh, I think it's under. It's right there. Yeah, the security mm-hmm. right You're- right next to the reporting and analytics. Um, don't worry. Yeah, thank got you. you. I, I know I've got the. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You've got much younger that eyes than I do, but uh, yeah, under the security box here, you see that um, cybersecurity is obviously a part of that. And mm-hmm. also, you know, we get into master data management a couple boxes mm-hmm. over. Um, that's another important one. Back to the point earlier about analytics and having the right data and reporting and information coming out of the system. That's important too. You don't want to just put in technology for technology's sake without having better visibility and better analytics than you had before uh, the transformation. So those are those are all good points as well. Um, here's an interesting uh, comment from uh, Gassan over on LinkedIn. Um, he says that customizations of ERP or technology in general increases the risk of failure due to distorting of the standard workflow of the ERP. This is creating snowball aftermath for support and cost. Um, that's a great point that customization mm-hmm. is a key source of risk in transformation. And anytime you do a customization, you're introducing more risk into the project. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is it's not always that easy. It's not always that easy to say, don't customize because typically, or oftentimes I should say, the reason for wanting to customize is because it's helping address some sort of um, competitive advantage or something that's unique to you as a business that you want to preserve, that, that you want to maintain. And the phenomena you have to navigate or the tightrope you have to walk is that there's there are times where customization is appropriate, but it's a slippery slope because if you start customizing a little bit, it's easy to start customizing a lot when you shouldn't be doing it. So you should be real selective about it. And it's okay to customize sometimes. I mean, I think that's a a misperception in the marketplaces. Mm -hmm. Customization is bad and it's sort of a universal blanket statement. And again, software vendors perpetuate it by saying, hey, we've got best practices in our software. If you would just be more open to change and just change your business and use our software the way it was built, then everything would be fine. Well, no, maybe, but maybe it won't be fine. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's going to, you know, to- totally water down some of your competitive advantage or some of the things you already do well as an organization. So why would you do that? And so you just have to be careful that you're not getting guilted into or, or duped into, you know, just using standard software when maybe that standard software isn't the right solution for, uh, for your business. Um, the other thing too, is it's not always just customization. You know, that's not always the one option. You, you could either customize, change the software to fit your business. The other option or another option is you change the business to fit the software. A third option is you go find a third-party bolt-on system. Maybe there's a software out there that handles that function better than the core enterprise-wide technology or ERP system you're trying to deploy. Maybe that's the option. And that's, again, there's risks, rewards with each of those three options, but you have to sort of weigh those against the project governance and the strategic parameters that you set for the project early on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, it's that finding that balance, but I think what the thesis of, of your recommendation there is, is understand what all of that means. That professional skepticism that we kind of talk about, everyone involved in that conversation has an agenda. So if a, a vendor is saying, hey, oh, no worries, we can just customize that. Like, you know, it's, it's, we're just dotting our I's and crossing our T's. It's, it's not how that works, right? There, that needs to be considered, mapped out, truly analyzed to make sure that that's, that's a big business decision to customize a piece of software. It's not only expensive, but it changes processes or those types of things. I'll 
also the risk kind of in there is that off the shelf piece of, you know, we, our software was built around tons of studies that shows how businesses can be most efficient. So you should just do what we say. Right. And that piece too is like, um, well, uh, we could do that, but that would completely change our business model, our, our identity as a brand, our overall um, competitive advantage or secret sauce when it comes to the marketplace. So understanding just that decision, none is bad or good, but everyone has an agenda in that conversation. And being able to have the asset of an independent third party to say, these are all the considerations, not this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, but these are all of the different pieces that will change as far as your business and the system if you do choose to customize. Because if you don't have that that awareness around the impact of the customization, Gassan, you're totally right. It will snowball into, oh, okay, then we'll just customize this and we'll just customize that. And that will kind of be the catch-all answer until you have this huge complex system that you can't maintain and you you have those those feared data silos or things like that that um, you know don't integrate and, and allow you to make the best decisions for your organization. Yeah, yeah, and I know when we do, um, and I didn't mention this up front, but that that quality assurance framework that we were showing earlier and just risk mitigation in general, um, that whole framework was built largely on some of our expert witness work. So when mm-hmm. we do expert witness work, we were testifying in court as it relates to a lawsuit related to digital transformation. And we've done a lot of those cases where we've, we've testified in court to support these, these uh, lawsuits. And um, the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times what happens in these expert witness cases when there's a lawsuit is that the software vendor will blame, you know, the, first of all, the customer will blame the software vendor because they were sold a bill of goods. The software doesn't work the way they said it would. Um, it costs more than they thought. You know, there's all these damages that they allege for the implementing organization. And then what the software vendors and system integrators typically do in response to that as part of their defense is to say that, well, you, Mr. or Mrs. Client, refuse to change. Our software could do A, B, and C, but you refuse to use it the way it was built. You customized and therefore you created these risks yourself. Well, the problem is, you know, usually there's some sort of middle, you know, gray area there where it was sort of like a, a combination of people's fault. Um, but a lot of times that's what the way software vendors think. And again, the, the reality is, is it's not as cut and dry as does the software do function A, B, or C, but it's how well does it do function A, B, or C, and how well does function A, B, or C fit our business? And that's the gray area that becomes tricky because it's not just a check mark like in an RFP response where you say, can it do A, B, or C? Chances are most vendors are going to say, yes, it can. It may not do it well, but it can do it, <laughs> you know, is, is sort of the response that you oftentimes see. So I think that's uh, one of the key challenges there as well. Absolutely. Such an important point too um, of, yes, it can do that, but can it do it right for that client or that business structure? So um, that's definitely a a really important point. Yeah. Yeah. And and just to, I guess, just to maybe wrap up now that we're up against time here, Kyler, you shared a couple of resources, maybe... Mm -hmm maybe help us recap what are some of the immediate takeaways or sort of uh, things that we could do to start thinking about mitigating risk, regardless of where we are on the project, what kind of resources could you direct us to and kind of lead Yeah, us absolutely. Well, we, we obviously have all of our thought leadership, literally thousands of, of videos from Eric and the rest of our team here. Um, we have our 2023 
transformation report, which I would definitely start with because that gives you an overall kind of thousand foot view of what your software selection is going to look like, some of the top systems, organizational change management, um, and then also quality assurance in, in that piece. Um, the one thing I will recommend, which sounds like sales language for us, which it doesn't matter to me if you come to third stage or anywhere else, if you reach out to a third party that is technology agnostic and independent, that's going to be the biggest insurance package that you can buy for your project because that expert is going to be able to assume your business goals while understanding kind of all of the technical conversations and complexities behind the software vendor, the SI, and any other internal teams that you have involved. So that's certainly where I would start is getting that knowledge and then talking to independent experts to ensure that you have are you're armed with the ability to have that conversation as a project leader. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. And, um, all those resources you just mentioned, you can find on our website at third stage and you spell out the word third. So it's T H I R D stage dash consulting.com. And, um, if you also follow us, you can either follow third stage and, or, uh, Kyler or I individually on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, TikTok, you know, follow us on social media because we're always putting stuff out there too. So there's a daily basis where we're cranking out content and putting out information that is meant to help the digital transformation community. And then Kyler has dropped a couple links in the chat here too, as well to help uh, with that. So, okay, good stuff. Thank you again, Kyler, for that great conversation. And thank you to the audience for the great questions and conversations points there. That was, that was very helpful and, and a good conversation. Hopefully that gives you some good perspective on how to begin to manage risk in your digital transformation. When we come back, we're going to shift gears a bit, um, although it is very much related or similar, uh, it sort of ties into what we just talked about in our, our previous segment. We're gonna have Brad Feeks, who's the president of Estes Group, a cloud and managed service provider, um, who's gonna be on the show, talking about how to manage that journey to the cloud. Um, and we talk a bit about lift and shift and how cloud technologies have their strengths and weaknesses and their challenges. We just talked about that in the conversation here about risk management. So we're going to shift gears here and play you a clip from our Stratosphere event where Brad talks about um, the journey to the cloud. So we'll take a quick break and we'll get to that segment. But first, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 85. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Teetham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on social media as well. Uh, we're on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok. Be sure to follow us on those social media platforms as well. So we are excited for our next guest. This is actually a recording from our Stratosphere, our digital Stratosphere online event that we held earlier this year. Um, by the way, you can go view and watch any of those workshop keynote presentations at stratosphere2022.com. But we wanted to show you this clip here with Brad Feeks, who talks about how to make that journey to the cloud. And so we'll, we'll play the clip and then we'll come back with some conversation. But let's roll the clip here from Digital Stratosphere 2022. And let me quickly take just a second to tell you a little bit about Estes Group so you understand some context about what we're doing. Estes Group, we're a consultancy and cloud migration uh, agency. We work with companies to uh, migrate their systems, their applications, primarily in the ERP space, into the cloud. We also provide the supporting and managed IT services that wrap around that uh, ERP. What we started out as, uh, interestingly enough, was a system integrator. And over the years, our customers were telling us differently and say, no, we don't want you to be a system integrator. We need help with these other things that are coming along with the ERP system because biting off an ERP system is really you're, you're boiling a much larger ocean to mix metaphors. And we found ourselves more and more helping customers with these auxiliary activities such as, you know, the applications deployment, its administration. Um, and, you know, as, as customers started picking up with the idea of cloud deployments, they started asking, well, this is great. What else can I do with the cloud uh, to better my business? And we started working into some other areas. And that's, uh, I guess, a quick thumbnail sketch as to how we got here uh, as, as the Estes group and why I'm speaking today about cloud. Um, speaking about cloud, uh, just my, my first caveat is I'm speaking to you from Chile, Wisconsin, and um, I got fingers crossed that Starlink is getting through the clouds and, and up to the satellites to give you uh, unfettered connection. And if it's not, Elon's going to be hearing about that. So let's come here and let's talk about cloud migration. And I think the big piece here to start off with is this idea of understanding options, right? So I, this whole thing is about options. And I think with the cloud, it's really important to understand that there are options, right? So when I go to uh, user events, I've often talked to a different uh, ERP users and, say, and go through the options with me. And at some point they kind of cock their head and they look at me and they say, I didn't realize we had any options. And uh, quite often uh, the user community is given a very uh, simple path through the woods in terms of where their vendor most often wants them to go. Um, quite often uh, customers are given a very specific uh, prescribed path to follow in terms of the cloud. And quite often it's better for the vendor than it is for the customers themselves. Uh, so one of my missions has been to try and, and explain those options and try to understand from customers what, what their needs are and, and helping them find their way to the best option. And we'll be covering that. Uh, a lot of uh, I'm going to be focusing today mostly on migration options, but we will also kind of cover a little bit on some of the more general options available uh, to you as a cloud user, uh, primarily in the context of ERP. So uh, as uh, we kind of approach the cloud, this is mostly in terms of the movement of large enterprise applications from one deployment model to another. And the two uh, migration methods anyways that we'll be talking here, which I think tend to be the most common, will be, as we had discussed, lift and shift 
and build from scratch. So we'll give you a quick thumbnail sketch where a lift and shift is this idea, and I apologize, this, this uh, presentation went a little clip art crazy. For some reason, I find some sort of like dopamine related uh, easement of my mind when I, everything is, is taken down to simple black and white silhouettes and something it does. But anyways, um, lift and shift and build from scratch. So if you're talking lift from shift, lift and shift, it, it's a forklift is the image with, which I think is really nice. It's like the idea that you're forklifting your existing server footprint into a new environment. So a good example would be you have a on-premise application database and terminal server farm. You pick those environments up in terms of kind of like an image of those environments. And you drop that now in, onto a virtual server in a, so let's say private cloud hosted environment such that all of the things that came along with that environment literally get dropped into that new environment benefits, liabilities to that, and we'll go into that uh, shortly. Uh, another envir uh, environmental migration option that you have is kind of, I would say in many ways, the opposite of that. Rather than lifting and shifting what you've already had, you're gonna say, I'm gonna take this new environment, I'm gonna carve out a new cloud environment, I'm gonna build it up from scratch, all the different application layers, and implement that instead. Um, so within those two contexts, a couple of quick bullets, what we're, what we're going to go through. Like I said, the options, um, really important that you understand where you're coming from uh, and the, the base platform that you wish to migrate to. I'm going to have some visuals and some, some metaphors, I guess, to try and understand what I'm speaking about when I talk about base platform versus a tertiary platform. Um, understand that impact of hybrid cloud integrations. And it's uh, one of those kind of uh, drinking game terms, right? Anytime someone says hybrid cloud, you take a drink and we're all under the table before noon. Um, but it's a real important uh, concept to understand. And especially as it relates to migrations, because those, those hybrid third-party applications are coming along for the ride when you migrate, right? No one migrates in a vacuum, right? No man is an island, no application is either. Um, talking through cost considerations because these versions these different options give you different considerations of, of cost in terms of spend me now spend me later etc and some of the other factors that you might want to talk about in order to understand just which option is preferable to you all right so the idea here uh, when third stage approached us about doing a session i had just had a, a long discussion with our technical staff and some of our data center uh, counterparts and we were talking through the different options of migration and it got me thinking about this whole topic and i thought boy this would be a great topic to take some of that uh, knowledge that we were kind of trying to consolidate internally and spread that out to the user community and got me thinking about what does it mean to do that uh, that migration my, my first thought was kind of your classic cliche that it's really all about the journey and, and not the destination and then I thought to myself, no, wait, that's not, that's not really true. The, the destination, honestly, really is, is kind of an important thing. Uh, it's, it's probably as important as, as the actual migration path you take. And then come to think of it, it honestly, it really matters where you're coming from. Um, and so going through all of this left me utterly confused and feeling a, a bit like a dinosaur. So it became my challenge to try and unpack some of those cloud terms and, and cloud strategies and try to make that sensible both to myself and, and to you. All right. And why was I so confounded? Well, one of the biggest reasons I was uh, where I was, and, and this has been, I think, an ongoing thing I find in the user community is 
the abundance of terminology. Um, marketing overlaps with technicals and creates big, massive, confusing terms that we use, and we use them very liberally. And, and as a result, we create a lot of confusion quite often. Um, so much that the, you know, the customer is trying to better understand what the cloud might feel like, and you know they go looking for the cloud and what do they find they really only find the ether as, as t.s Eliot once said they they end up like a patient etherized on a table and i'm pretty sure that when t.s Eliot said this he was specifically thinking about infrastructure as a service can't verify but my, my hesitation there um so i've just talked about how people talk too much about terminology so let me solve that by talking about terminology okay um because really if you don't know the pieces on the chessboard um, you're not going to know how to be able to move them properly because uh, the, the type of piece you have on the chessboard really limits the moves you can make. And that, that feels like a really profound chess metaphor coming from a guy who fails at checkers. So let's first talk about the most basic, right? An on-premise install, the customer owns it, manages it. You have all the pieces of an on-premise install basically end up being the customer's requirements and responsibility. That means all the things, the, the, the simple things from setting up your, your physical servers and in, installing the application, then managing that, in, that installed application, keeping it running, which is harder than it sounds in a lot of cases. Um, and then all this infrastructural stuff around it, power redundancy, cooling, all these little things that if you don't have them and don't have them consistently, you have a huge uh, heap of problems. Um, because it's it's fully managed, you have full control. And a lot of customers traditionally, it was the only way you could deploy an application uh, outside of an old, you know, old school um, like uh, mainframe, really. Um, but in the client server world, this is really the the way that people did it for you know, decades. And uh, as that model, has, as opportunities have changed, that model is getting challenged in a lot of cases, but that's really a, kind of a starting point for a lot of companies in the spaces where Estes Group plays. Um, the most obvious opposite version would be the one you go up here below software as a service or SaaS, right? This is, is where, where the customer manages on an on-premise software as a service model is almost the opposite. It's completely vendor managed. Um, and the customer is really only consuming it at a client level. So, and this is, of course, we all have applications like this, Office 365 or Salesforce or what have you. You're working in an application, you're, you're connecting to it through a browser. You never see that backend instantiation. You can't ever see the actual database tables or the business logic that's running behind there. You have no idea what's, how it's actually deployed and, and how many concurrent users are being deployed on a given server, what have you, all of that is, is a black box essentially to the, to the end user. Uh, you don't have that control. So for, for applications that you've been kind of raised to think of it that way, like uh, say Salesforce is a good example because it was cloud up from, from the beginning. That seems like uh, an obvious and normal way to proceed because you've never seen anything else. Now for customers who are coming from on-premise versions where they administered the application and then kind of built their company configurations around that access and control that move to, to SaaS can be very uh, very concerning in a lot of ways. And, and some of them are, are justifiably concerning. Um, what I consider a kind of a middle road between the on-premise and the SaaS is what I call a private cloud environment. So private cloud, you kind of carved out a space where only you can play in versus kind of a more of a, a public cloud SaaS model where 
you have a lot of shared resources, the computing resources inside of a private cloud. Now this would in include some of our favorite acronyms, take a drink, uh, IAS or PAS, uh, which would be infrastructure platform as a service. For, for the point of our concern, really really we can treat those as one, one uh, entity because they're living within a private cloud environment. Um, what you have here is that dedicated resource. You're allowing for the customer to have responsibility removed, to have you know, the servers, the data centers, all those classical architectural things, those responsibilities, you remove those away from the customer while still, because it's a private cloud environment and kind of apportioned off from others, they have a level of access and control that they don't have in a SaaS model. And we get down to our, our bottom quadrant here and we talk about hybrid cloud. Now, Hybrid cloud is one of those uh, great terms that, that that really goes in a lot of directions because it means a lot of things. Uh, I, I treat it pretty simply as the idea of once you start integrating your core system with tertiary systems, you're creating a hybrid cloud. Um, and most often uh, you're creating a situation where the interaction of systems is happening uh, that sit on different platforms. Uh, it's very common to have an ERP system integrate with Salesforce, right? Because Salesforce is best of breed CRM um, and many ERP systems CRM tends to be a little weaker. So they'll, they'll create an integration or, or some you know, third party integrator, a jitterbit or what have you will have some level of API integration. Now you have maybe a on-premise ERP system that has a cloud-based uh, CRM system. Voila, you have a hybrid cloud. All right, but with that and with those, uh, each of those models, all right, uh, the, the model that, you, whether it's the model you're coming through and the model you're going to, all comes with some baggage, right? No migration comes without baggage. So if you're talking about, in, in our case, we'll say you're talking about a move away from a on-premise uh, server. It's not as simple as, a, as an application. You're talking about all of these different uh, components that comprise the, the baggage that you need to figure out how to move when you migrate. And this could be the simple things like computing power, CPU, RAM, disk storage, those classic things you would have learned in your computer science 101 class. Uh, licensing is one of those big things too that licensing right off uh, quite often is configured around environmental models and they may not be transferable to other models unless you have some kind of perpetual licensing uh, uh, capability that you have and you may not be able to move it as easy as you thought. Um, you have something as simple as Active Directory. Integration uh, applications are becoming much more tied into simple things like email. Um, so your Active Directory, how you access and is there single sign-on? Do you have all those pieces talking to each other? Um, you talk about all your, your outside infrastructure things, things that would affect your network edge and what have you. Um, your firewall, the bandwidth coming in and out, your DRAS, your backup. Do you have all those things taken care of? Are you uh, protecting it in some areas? You know, are the endpoints being uh, governed in some way such that you're not introducing bad information? Uh, the, the amount of baggage that comes out with a migration is, is quite often larger than uh, a customer anticipates out of the gate. And this is to say, we haven't even talked about all those integrations. I, it's funny, I was talking with a customer the other day that was looking to do a cloud migration. And we started the conversation. And at the start of the conversation, we asked, okay, well, what kind of uh, uh, integrations do we have? And they said, well, we have two integrations. Okay, so we noted those as we went, we went kind of through our, our Q&A session. And by the time we were done asking questions about this configuration and that configuration, we realized we didn't have two integrations, we had nine. 
And um, what, what quite often happens in organizations is that people forget where the base application ends and the extensions begin. And those configurations just become kind of part and parcel of the entire uh, package itself in the user's mind. And um, in terms of a migration, you really need to think about those because they're not so nice and tightly bound. Um, I'd say when I first got into the world of ERP, this would have been circa oh, 99 pre Y2K kind of stuff. Uh, the, the ideal of an integrated solution was still, I think, being pushed pretty hard. The idea that you have one system with an integrated set of modules that did everything you needed. And as, as things went along and as the ERP space developed, I think that model has really kind of fallen on hard times. And uh, the um, necessary evil of integrated applications and kind of a best of breed approach really has uh, taken over in a lot of ways such that the integration of applications is almost a given. And even ERP vendors themselves, they, they buy up third parties and then call them integrated modules. Truth is, they're just a little third party app that has the same kind of configurations that can all right, so that said, let's talk about our migrations and the uh, my original uh, thinking dinosaur questions about the destination and where you came from. You come to a set of roads diverged, and it, it kind of is uh, usable from, uh, I'd say, if you uh, ever read Dante's Inferno, and you, you see the, the the prologue to Dante's Inferno, Dante ends up in a, in a dark wood, lost in a dark wood. It's kind of one of your classic hero's journey stories. Um, with some pretty strong religious overtones. Um, and so the idea of being lost in a dark wood quite often is where uh, cloud customers come to us and that's kind of at the place they are. And uh, it, it, take this for what it's worth. I've seen more than a few people say that the migration of a cloud is kind of like navigating Dante's concentric circles of hell. Take that for what it's worth. I don't know if I would say that's that bad. I and mean, some people don't like a road trip, but um, the idea here would be, as, as one client of mine had said it, um, and you, you might, right after reading a little Robert Frost, he came to me and said, two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one most traveled by. And that's why I have recurring downtime and terrible latency and why I can't access my server anymore. And why I'm getting billed through the nose for egress fees. And that makes all the difference. Um, so the path you take is an important one. Um, and where you're coming from and where you're going to is really key. So you have four common movements that we've seen inside of uh, our world. Uh, one has been on-premise to SaaS, and that's a challenging one for a whole bunch of reasons. We won't be going into that in great detail. Um, ourselves, we end up kind of going the other direction, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But the movement into SaaS, quite often, uh, a, a longtime user of an ERP system has constructed a square peg and their ERP vendor is now giving them the, the same application in a SaaS format in the shape of a round hole. And you can imagine um, the effort it takes to file off those corners before you get a fit. Um, another common movement is the on-premise to private cloud movement. This would be one that, that uh, I at the Estes Group uh, oversee a fair bit, the movement of an on-premise architecture into a cloud environment, whether it's a lift and shift or a build from scratch. Um, that would be an area there. What's interesting also is I see a lot of movement private cloud to private cloud. So a customer will move their private cloud into a, they have like a local MSP mom and pop shop that has a local data center and they'll stick it in there because they don't want to replace the server and the local MSP will service it for a while. And then they'll have enough problems that the local MSP will run into 
and they'll come to us or a similar provider that does you know, kind of the ERP side and the hosting side and say, can you help us? Uh, we have it hosted, but we can't get the performance we want, or we can't resolve issues quickly enough or whatever. And they end up you know, shifting from one private cloud to another. And surprisingly enough, I've seen a lot of movement lately of customers moving from SaaS to a private cloud. So it's kind of, uh, if you think of SaaS as the ultimate end, end game of cloud computing, it's interesting to see that we see a lot of uh, folks coming to us and these are the ones with, with the roads uh, diverged in a wood problems, you know, because of latency, access, control, cost considerations, find themselves moving away from SaaS and moving back into a private cloud. Um, biggest implication of this model here that I'm speaking to is uh, understanding that each of those places, where you're coming from and where you're going to, uh, limits certain decisions that you can make going forward. And we'll talk a little bit more of that as we as we go. Okay, we're here in the midst of a conversation with Brad Feeks presenting on how to manage the journey to the cloud. We've got a lot more content to cover in this presentation, but we're gonna take a quick break first. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 85. We're here listening to a presentation from Brad Feeks talking about the journey to the cloud. So let's cut back to the conversation. So I like to think uh, on top of that, you know, the layering of the hybrid cloud uh, is a helpful consideration here um, because those changes, uh, I kind of think of it as um, an application is an octopus and, it, and it's moving through the water at a high speed and its tentacles are kind of dragging behind it, right? Um, we sometimes think we want to shift our entire ecosystem from here to a new place. Um, quite often in practice, businesses have uh, each of their applications in their stack. I don't know if any of you have ever seen what they call a bubble chart. It's kind of like a relational diagram when you go into an organization and you pick out all the different applications they're using. You try to come up with kind of a map, an architectural map of, of what they all are and what the lines of intersection are, and whether those are manual intersections or system-driven intersections. Um, you'll see a customer might have a very uh, current ERP system and yet it's hooked to this little quality management system that they just love because it does everything they need and that thing's still living on an access database and it can only integrate in a batch mode and there's no new version, right? Uh, the, the vendor went out of business and they, but they don't want to change those business processes. They don't want to spend the money on a new version because the new version is, is fancy and it's in the cloud and it connects through an API and they don't have the time or the budget to actually implement it. Um, so they might move an application, their ERP, their, their centralized ERP into the cloud, but now they have to figure out how to get that tentacle along for the ride. Now, 
another metaphor you might want to use that, I, that I've always thought works well for me when I conceptualize this is like the idea of the hub and spoke model. All right. So in, in, in application architecture, if you look at the entire ecosystem of a company, it has that kind of hub and spoke that you have this centralized system, the enterprise system around which everything revolves. And then you have these ancillary systems that link into that that hub system. So most often, if you look at, at our little example here, you're looking at the ERP system as that hub. And then all these ancillary systems, your QA system, your SRM, your CRM, your business intelligence, they're those systems that come along as part of that spoke. And wherever the hub moves, the spokes come along for the ride. You just need to make sure that you don't get yourself caught in a wheel rut and make sure that those spokes don't break along the way. Um, and the, the interesting parts is that your migration you know, will vary pretty strongly depending on what your hub is. Now, is that hub sitting on an on-premise environment? Okay, that tells you that you can get away with certain connection layers. Um, does your hub sit in a SaaS environment? Now, if you've, if you've implemented in SaaS, you'll understand that because it's all browser-based and because you have no access to the, to the server's backend, the only degree to which you can interact with the system is through the API layer. And if those API layers um, are not as robust as you need, you might find yourself struggling for options. And I see this a lot in the ERP space where companies have, uh, vendors will have a, an on-premise version and a uh, cloud version, a SaaS version. And, and third-party vendors build their applications at that lower level because they can create their own APIs or kind of proprietary APIs that can speak to the system at lower levels in a manner that's more comprehensive and faster than the SaaS layer where those REST APIs are still a work in process um, becomes a big consideration. If you have a lot of systems that are still using ODBC connections, for instance, moving to a SaaS means that those applications, you're essentially deciding to cut off those tentacles and leave them behind. Um, so you need to, to have considerations of what that might actually mean uh, for your organization. And that's because I, I like to describe it, there's this hidden brick wall hovering in the cloud that separates pure software as a service from private cloud, IAS, PAS, ETC, AAS, et cetera, as a service, I like to call it. And it has to do with that integration layer. And I think the fundamental principle, um, if you were to get anything out of this slide, was that idea that access and control dictate uh, what you can do in terms of your overall third-party uh, uh, hybrid cloud platform. In the absence of access and control, you, you might find yourself doing a lot of custom coding to build integrations that you weren't planning on. Um, I think I see that most when folks implement into a, a pure SaaS environment, that integration of all those layers that they didn't think they had to worry about suddenly becomes a thing. Uh, I had one customer move to SaaS and they, they were told that it would be a two-month process. It ended up being about a nine-month um, to get them where they are at those extra seven months were really all custom source coding and integration testing, et cetera. All those things that you don't really realize when you sign the dotted line, all these upfront implementation costs, ultimately. All right. So I'm sure you're listening to me. I'm going off about terminologies and theories and thinking to myself, gosh, is this guy actually going to talk about the migration portion? Let's get on with that already. Uh, I apologize for the unwanted latency. It, I feel even when you're talking with cloud, you want a foundation. 
let's talk about uh, a specific use case here that, that I think would be helpful um, when we talk about a specific company and, and we'll kind of go back to that right at the end. So I'll, I'll go through this and I'll go through a little bit more and we'll talk about how this use case might have been approached here. So let's say you're a, dis a distributor and you have uh, this situation where you have multiple locations, you have an on-premise ERP system with an aging server, uh, vendors pushing you to move to your SaaS offering, you have a lot of integrations, you have a, a SRM, a supplier relationship management, you have CRM, you have an e-commerce portal, you have some lower level shipping automation. Those are real common, I find, in the ERP space is something that connects you to your FedEx and your UPS systems to get those all kind of hooked in together. Um, and as a result, you've opted to do a scenario where you're going to move from your on-prem into a, a hybrid cloud with a private cloud uh, ERP as its hub. And that's kind of the scenario we'll, we'll get back to after we talk through uh, some of the options when it comes to the, the idea of lift and shift versus uh, build from scratch. So as we had talked about, lift and shift versus uh, build from scratch. What are our options? Let's dive a little deeper into them individually. And let's talk about lift and shift. So as I said, this is, you know, you're essentially, you're taking a copy of your customer server, you're lifting it from one environment, shifting it over and, and dropping it into another. Um, some very big uh, overall considerations. As you might anticipate, this is a real fast uh, activity. It's something that is great if, if you've been hacked or if your server just died and you need to get your, your, your system back online in a hurry. And we have that. We had one customer recently, they had been, uh, their, their data center provider had been hacked. The entire data center had been brought down and they finally got their application back and they needed to get it up in a hurry. Lift and shift might be one of those uh, options. Of course, you'd want to be careful there to think of, uh, did the ransomware come along for the ride? You might actually be talking about a, 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 a rebuild if you're, it, depending on what got attacked. But um, so that's one, one option. If you're in a situation where you need to get live in a hurry, lift and shift is a real nice, uh, a simple process. Um, in terms of costs, so we, the, the cloud is not free, uh, and, and in many cases, it's not cheap. Um, quite often, the thing that you're mitigating with the cloud isn't simple costs. It's, it's overall costs, and it's risk. And um, if you want to get to the cloud very quickly because you want to avoid the risk of your server going down, I see a lot of customers who have aging server architecture and they've had small outages and they're afraid something big will happen. Um, yeah, I have customers who have uh, really inadequate um, servers, uh, data center uh, environments where they have, uh, you have the conference room, okay, boss sits on the end of the table, CFO sits next to him, CIO next to him, and then the third seat is the server. Uh, I've seen that in a couple of cases where you have the server has a spot at the table um, because they don't know where else to put it. And um, in those cases, you get a heat wave. Uh, it's, it seems especially bad on the East Coast. You get an East Coast heat wave with some of that sticky, humid weather, and suddenly my customer can't, can't implement their system because the server went down. Um, it's, it's surprisingly common, even with you know, small, medium-sized businesses in the mid-market. Um, so for, for customers that need to get out of there and get out quickly, great option. The cost size of it is, is good because if you lift and shift, all the costs that come along with the more difficult rebuild, and we'll talk about that in a second, are reduced. Now, 
I would say it's it's often the idea of uh, it's really it's a kicking of the can. I like to say you you avoid in early costs and initial costs, but those costs may come back to haunt you later on. We'll talk about some of those reasons. Um, ideally, if you're doing a lift and shift, I think it should be done, and often it is with the intent of upgrading your platform once it's in the cloud. If if the goal is to get into the cloud quickly and you still want to do some maintenance and and improvement of that system it's good that you have that built into that plan because this uh, assumes that your existing server configuration and your hybrid cloud configuration are what you're going to go forward with. There's very limited reconfiguration opportunities. Um, and with that, those limits come potential things that you're missing out on. Uh, and they could be if you if your existing system wasn't configured well to begin with, you might find yourself that lifting and shifting it is really kind of a loss. I have a customer right now that we're working with who uh, is moving to a, a new server architecture. And it's all because their initial implementation, they had kind of botched up some of the simple things with the implementation of, of the server architecture and the configuration, the BIOS, everything else. And they, they want to basically leave that behind and start fresh. You can't do that in a lift and shift environment. You're kind of constrained by whatever it is you're, you're moving along with you. Um, and, and as a part of that, one thing that, that people like about a lift and shift is that allows you to postpone upgrades, right? So if you're in a situation where you want to move the application, but you don't want the extra scope creep of uh, upgrading the system at the same time, you don't have the bandwidth to do that, you can do that. But of course, that's, that's good and bad because uh, out-of-date software creates its own problems. So it's one of those benefits that only will help you for a while. Um, one challenge you'll have here is if your server that you're coming from actually hosts multiple applications and databases, you might be actually unintentionally moving things that you didn't want to, right? Because it's, it's not uncommon that an application server will host more than one application and those applications may be unrelated. And similarly, you might, you know, you might be uh, hosting certain CAD software that's only used internally, not integrated. Now, suddenly that application got moved along for the ride. Did you want that? Is that good for your business? Now, if you have, uh, you know, X amount of gigs uh, of space uh, that your database is, and now you have to move uh, the whole database uh, in a lift and shift model. Now, suddenly you're paying a lot for that disk space and some of that storage may not actually be beneficial because it's actually going to end up staying back on your, your on-premise environment. I've seen that happen too. So the idea of the portability of the environment is really important. Um, and I would say the more your existing environment, the more applications that it hosts uh, all at once, the less portable it becomes. And uh, in terms of reconfiguration, the idea of limited reconfiguration essentially means you have less ability to fine tune your performance going forward. And that sometimes is one way of describing when I was talking to one of our, our techs, he described it as the sins of the past coming back with you, coming with you along the way. Um, I remember one of those horror movies where they had a haunted house and they, they moved away. And as they're driving away, they hear that little voice that's squealing in excitement that it's coming along for the ride. So the idea that the ghost followed with them, it's kind of like that. The ghosts of server past come along with you and, and find location in your new environment. And that could be a real challenge if there are, if those problems are, are things like security-based, right? If, what if you did not secure that server well? If, you, if your integrations were not um, really bulletproof? If your user access, if, if you were using, I don't know, admin-admin as your access point, uh, you could have a, a lot of challenges that come along as a, as a nature of that. 
And it's the easiest thing I would say in all environments is for going testing because you think you have apples to apples, you don't bother to cut in one and make sure there aren't any worms. And that for me is one of those break perils that you really wanna avoid. Okay, we're here in the midst of a conversation with Brad Feeks presenting on how to manage the journey to the cloud. We've got a lot more content to cover in this presentation, but we're gonna take a quick break first. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 85. We're here listening to a presentation from Brad Feeks talking about the journey to the cloud. So let's cut back to the conversation. So building from scratch, kind of taking the opposite approach here from the lift and shift. Here in this, in this case, you're saying, I'm gonna construct this future state environment from the ground up. I'm gonna take all those application layers, uh, Active Directory, the network, all your components that we had talked about earlier in the process here, and I'm going to build those all up, configure them, and we're going to deploy that new enterprise system on top of that install. Um, you're not re-implementing the application, right? The actual database uh, of that application comes along from your old system, but you're not taking a snapshot of the server on which it lifted. You're just pulling out that single database. You're exporting that database, re-importing it. So that allows for all kinds of new configuration opportunities, uh, opportunities to leverage the, the server capabilities that, that are here now. Um, it also sometimes involves new add-ins. And this is an interesting challenge because when we talk about the, the hub and its spokes now, if the hub it, it upgrades to a new operating system level, some of those integrated applications may now need new versions themselves. Their old versions would break when trying to speak to uh, a new version of, of your operating system. So you might find that your overall footprint of activities grows and that the scope grows beyond what you thought it might because of that. Some of those things are hard to suss out until you've actually done it because it's not the case. Often it is the often the case that you might be doing this specific upgrade from this version to that version for the first time for this specific third party. And now you have kind of some unknown unknowns uh, that, that creep up at that point. Now, one of the, the benefits here is that you have the opportunity to, to implement apples to apples, but you also have the opportunity to upgrade at the same time. So I worked a lot in one ERP system where they had a, ma a very major release where they changed the underlying architecture of the application. They moved off some old legacy server side operating systems, app server levels, code platforms, database, everything onto basically a Microsoft uh, stack. 
um, that movement was a great time for customers to think, okay, maybe this is a good time, not just to upgrade the application, but to upgrade it and move it to an up-to-date uh, server architecture because that legacy platform now could only live on, I think it was server 2008. Uh, so you get to one of those uh, operating system versions that no one wants to host anymore. Uh, you know, cloud uh, my, uh, data centers, they don't want to have a certain version on their server because it's it's either vulnerable or hard to maintain or it's brittle. There's, there's a number of reasons that moving to the cloud is a hard thing to do without um, moving to the latest version uh, at the operating system level and thus needing to build from scratch because what you have currently just isn't portable. It's gotten too old uh, to be portable. Um, so what, what I find sometimes here from a cost standpoint, you're looking you know, generally at, at a larger upfront cost and a larger uh, implementation uh, time schedule because this, the activities are just significantly larger um, and the testing requirements, you know, the strain on the business is larger. So a lot more uh, upfront cost gets consumed at that point. But really the, the benefit of that is the hope that you've done it once and don't need to do nearly as much going forward versus the uh, lift and shift, which is kind of the opposite. You get a quick lift, but then you have a lot of catch up to do to try to get that server uh, ready for the new millennia. Um, so that's really kind of the, the biggest benefit and challenges that I see when folks are moving uh, and doing uh, opting to do a build from scratch. So that said, let's talk about some general considerations that, that we want to talk about specifically as they relate to uh, third party apps. Um, and this kind of applies to considerations in terms of what branch do I want to take? Do I want to do a, a lift and shift or do I want to do uh, a build from scratch? And some of these questions to think about uh, would be helpful in trying to suss that out. So in terms of homegrown applications, surprising number of homegrown applications that still exist out there as part of your hybrid cloud. And many of these can have things like hard-coded IP configurations, things that, that specifically speak to that original server. You might want to find yourself um, you might find that it's harder to debug those or easier to miss those if you do a lift and shift because they break after the fact. And then you find yourself catching up after versus when you build it from the ground up, you, you tend to find those, those problems earlier. Um, so I've seen that several times with, with customers there. Um, also what I had talked about with version control, when you move that hub, you might have to uh, investigate those in, individually and try to figure out how are those uh, third parties broken. And again, that idea when you construct it from the ground up, you have the ability to integrate those third parties in, in alternative ways potentially, right? Because uh, just like core ERP systems, uh, third party integrations, they have, you might have an integration that was once an on-premise application only. Now you can get a cloud version. Maybe there's some benefit to that. One less application to have to install and maintain. Um, and, and version control we talked about there. Uh, security. So did, you, did your old configuration allow for insecure integrations? All right. In a lift and shift model, that question kind of gets forgotten and you just kind of go along your, your way. Um, security, I think, is really one of the great opportunities of the build from scratch that gives you that ability to say, hey, this, this, you know, we may want to try and do these things difference, differently than we had before. Um, now, uh, one, one interesting quirk that we've seen quite frequently, actually, is 
is when you're taking something and moving it, in a, especially in a lift and shift model, um, you move it outside of the WAN, you might find suddenly that some third-party integration integrated apps are no longer working well. Um, this happens most often with uh, shipping programs that are really chatty. You need to do a lot of back and forth to their, to their primary servers and get to the, uh, a lot of data lookup tables they perform to figure out rates and such. And some of that information can be uh, pretty time consuming to pass back and forth over the wires. What we've honestly found is we find ourselves uh, moving something to the cloud. You might actually want to take that third party app uh, especially those shipping apps and put that uh, locally installed and keep that there while the rest of the uh, configuration moves over. What I found is in a lift and shift model, quite often that's the thing that doesn't get noticed, that that movement and the, the changes in performance uh, doesn't get uh, discovered until you actually try and do that. So then without testing it thoroughly, you, you get um, some uncomfortable um, situations happen in live. I had one customer they were um, doing something around the Christmas season and they had done a, a move of, of an application from one area to another, they ended up moving outside of the WAN, suddenly exploding their performance uh, that it took to, for simple processes to complete. And, and as a result, uh, this was at Christmas time. So this was slowing down orders going out at a time when they needed orders in, in full force. So there's definitely some risk that you want to take uh, considering that. All right, uh, other general considerations that I like to think about, and some of this is really just maybe some, some repetition of things that I might already bantered at you, is that idea of portability of the application. It's really important to understand, is it portable uh, or is it multi-purpose? The more multi-purpose it is, the less portable it's gonna be, the less portable it is, the more likely you're gonna need to build from scratch. Um, are you looking to take, part, uh, take advantage of an ERP upgrade? The more likely you want to do an upgrade, the more likely you want to build from scratch versus a shift. Uh, the speed consideration, right? How quickly do you want it done? Lift and shift is obviously faster, at least in the phase one, in that first phase. Um, understand your hubs. You know, which hub did you come from? Which hub are you moving to? You might remember that earlier slide when I talked about the idea of private cloud to private cloud or SaaS to private cloud. Now, if you're coming from a SaaS uh, application, you want to Im implement you can't really get that back-end instantiation, so you're kind of by necessity going down the build from scratch model because there's just no way to get uh, an image from a SaaS environment. Everything's too commingled and bundled for that. Basically, you can get your database back, and then after that, you have to build everything up so that, that, that where you're coming from becomes really important. Um, conversely, if you're going into something else, if you're going from an on-prem or a private cloud into SaaS, you, but by nature, you have to implement over there's no nothing no real uh, benefit other than the database shifting everything else you're going to have to do from scratch um, operating system and database vision versions are they themselves portable so this is an interesting quirk you know microsoft anybody who's worked with microsoft licensing understands that those things are changing on a frequent basis um, and when we moved uh, into uh, with one specific ERP system, we moved to their latest version. And as we did that, we discovered that their SSRS, their SQL Server reporting services, those licenses had changed based on uh, number of cores versus number of users versus number of end customers. I forget the specifics, but it was uh, significant. And uh, understanding what those are going to be, one, might, might affect your cost. They might also in, uh, necessitate that you need to repurchase your licenses from Microsoft when you do the move. So if you're in a situation where um, you don't wanna have to do that, you might be pushing your, yourselves down that lift and shift model because you can kind of keep what you have. 
Um, and even there, if you're dealing with, say, terminal server licenses, terminal service licensure has been another piece that's been kind of a moving target over the years. You might find yourself that your, your ability to license something, and this is, I guess, more of a general cloud concern uh, when you're approaching the cloud, is, is having a good look at your licenses and saying, are these licenses movable in general, or is that an extra cost that I'm not going to be able to, or I have to bear? Um, you know, I hate the, the idea of answering those questions after you've already made commitments and then have those kind of come back and bite you. So you really want to be careful uh, on, on that side. Um, this is, I guess, more just soapbox preaching at this point, and it has to do with, is it an IT project or is the business side included, right? The testing, I, I would say the, and this actually goes to the next side here, but the, having the business involved really helps make sure that your goals in terms of helping the business are being met. You know, the, you've, I'm sure you've heard the maxim of winning the battle and losing the war. The, the war is helping the business. The battle is shifting your architecture so that you mitigate some risks. Now, make sure that that shifting has some benefits to your business and that you're kind of in tune with that. And this rolls into the idea of testing. If you have your business side involved, you can better test the application, make sure that all the pieces of the application printing labels, entering orders, communicating across integrations, uh, sending emails, receiving data, et cetera, are all working as intended. And I, I really advise that you try to avoid what I call that plug and pray scenario, right? And if you've ever seen those commercials with the world's most interesting man, I don't normally fix software problems, but when I do, it's in production, right? No one wants to be in that situation. You wanna have those problems solved ahead of time. So going back to our, our use case originally, let's talk a little bit about how this might have played out for, for this customer. So this customer was in multiple locations. So it was obviously a good reason to find a cloud option, right? Why? Because the cloud's great at communicating to multiple locations versus just being kind of localized in an on-premise area. The, the on-premise ERP system, they're pushed to SaaS, so they evaluated that. Let's assume in this case that they evaluated that and they said, okay, the square peg in the round hole doesn't work. Our system is sufficiently configured such that we're not going to bother to try and use the SaaS offering. Now, looking at integrations, they, they might have discovered that the SRM system uh, was working on a uh, uh, on-premise uh, situation, but this, the latest versions actually had moved to SaaS. And that's where you know I see it quite often integrations work really well in a SaaS model, better so honestly than the hub ERP system. So they froze there to move their SRM system into a SaaS environment. The CRM stayed along for the case. Now, biggest question for them had to do with, let's say their licensure and their, their uh, uh, licensure through Microsoft, they opted to repurchase licenses and move that into a private cloud, do a ground up rebuild, which allowed them to re-implement their e-commerce platform now, which had been four or five versions behind. Now that e-commerce platform was working with the system at the latest level. So they had a good couple of years of, of consistent performance there. The shipping automation, they went through the situation, looked at it. That was actually an application that they kept on-premise, integrated back so that this, the performance of the system, getting that data back and forth from the end users to the terminals was as minimal as possible. Um, in my mind, these are that's kind of a, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily an average example, but the kind of example that I see customers go through a lot, that they go through those decisions and come up with you know, a better overall solution from where they are today, mitigating some risk and moving on from there. And that said, I have uh, completed my uh, presentation here and I wanna thank everyone here for your time. 
And uh, I hope your movement into the cloud, as my, my little picture there, it doesn't end up in a mushroom cloud. And uh, you no one wants anything here to go nuclear. So thank you very much for your time. All right. Thank you, Brad. Great conversation. Good stuff. And uh, very relevant in today's day and age as more and more organizations are making that transition to the cloud. We've got a couple of takeaways and key points we want to cover. So we'll take a quick break and we'll come back to that. But first, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 85. We just had Brad Feeks on the show talking about the journey to the cloud. What were some of your questions or thoughts or takeaways or from that conversation, Kyler? Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great in-depth overview of lift and shift versus build from scratch. And I think the biggest takeaway from Brad's overall talk is um is making sure that there's a, a full baked plan behind however you're going to move your data or processes um, to the cloud and making sure that you truly understand that. A lot of times what we see is vendors can oversimplify what that looks like because you know it's a cloud solution. It can be more flexible and simplistic in some standpoints moving forward, but you still have to make sure that you migrate everything efficiently or that new data storage and opportunity um, isn't going to maximize business value. So I think um, Brad did a great job of explaining that the importance behind really putting time into that plan and almost do a selection in migration tactics um, after you've selected your software. Yeah, and it was interesting how that lift and shift concept came up in, in his presentation. And that's certainly something that we talked about in our our risk management conversation earlier in this episode. And he's, he's one of the few software vendors, by the way, that I think has a tendency to be realistic about, you know, some of the pros and cons and nuances of migrating to the cloud. I think too often you, you hear the software vendors that are kind of overselling the capabilities of, of cloud or the ease of migration and that sort of thing. So I think it's a interesting take he has. I think he has a good handle on the, the strengths and the upside of cloud, but also, you know, what the risks are and what to watch out for. Yeah, absolutely. And we often engage, Brad, um, when we have helped a client pick their software and they're going through their implementation. And a lot of times we'll, they'll reach back out to us and say like, hey, I don't know what this vendor is asking me for. I'm overwhelmed by this process. And, and Brad will come in and help advise what they should be doing depending on the system. And I think that's it something that's a, a real important point is it doesn't end with the software selection. 
the implementation planning needs to be really uh, impactful on how you're going to do that, not only from a migration strategy, but how will roles and responsibilities change? And do you speak the same language as your system integrator or your software vendor? Are you communicating effectively? Because if you're not, there's going to be disruption to the business and just overall breakage in the transformation. So I think a, lo a lot of times, you know, we, we think of it as that that um, computer that Brad calls the cloud of somebody else's computer is what he says, which I think is the right. best definition ever. So um, easy. I know, right? He's very good at um, at um, at you know ease of explaining. And if and if it's a complicated question, which I always like to ask him um, to see if I can trip him up a little bit, you know, I always like to mix it up. But he always says, "Oh, Kyler, that's a two beer question." <laughs> right. <laughs> that's why I favorite one liner. Yeah. Um, but in all seriousness, understanding that that is a very complex relationship and having someone on your side that kind of understands, especially for our small to medium sized businesses out there. That's who we see a lot of times that struggle through that, that part. And they often can't afford that type of disruption um, within their overall processes because they're a small to medium sized business. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it, I think he does in that presentation, it is a good, he does a good job of, of just simplifying some of the technicalities and the complexities of, of cloud. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's uh, some of those things with small and mid-sized companies. Um, there's a lot of benefit to being in the cloud, potentially even more benefit than a larger organization migrating to the cloud, just because it allows them to free up limited resources and cash and that sort of thing uh, from, from, you know, the big on-premise systems as they move to the cloud. So I think uh, there's a lot, of, certainly a lot of uh, potential there, but there's also risk with a smaller organization too, and just really understanding how that how that all works and operates in the background. Yeah, I feel like the metaverse is the cloud in 2010. You know what I mean? Like we right. we still didn't we still were like, okay, so is it in the cloud or where are we going? Where is the cloud? Is it a literal cloud or what are we talking about? But um, but I, I think that's that's something that the metaverse has been hard to conceptualize, but as we move into moving our businesses into the cloud, it's still a very slow evolution. Um, you know, you still see a lot of businesses with an on-prem solution. Uh, so understanding what that, that looks like um, and researching and learning about what does that mean for your business to be in more of, of that cloud-based solution. But if I were going through any sort of, cloud implementation or software selection, I would go through that presentation and write everything down because, because right. um, it really goes through a lot of the tactical shifts. And if you're listening to it in an audio format and you want to see the presentation, as Eric said, you can visit um, stratosphere2022.com to see all of those, um, those different uh, videos and also the replays on demand of the actual uh stratosphere full agenda so such great stuff and we can't wait to have um brad back here in a few weeks to actually talk about the cost of the cloud so that will be a good one to tune into as well oh very cool yeah i'm looking forward to that one too and he's a he's a great speaker and uh estes group is a partner of third stage as we work with them closely on uh, on the managed service side and, and some of the cloud uh, sides of things as well so it was great to have him on the show and we'll look forward to having him on again in the not too distant future well, good. Well, thank you for another great episode. Uh, There's good stuff. We packed a lot of stuff into that episode as always. And uh, I hope the audience found value in that. 
if anyone in the audience has questions or, or uh, suggestions, I should say, on topics you'd like to see us cover, we'd love to hear feedback. So be sure to drop any comments or feedback you have in the comments field on whatever platform you're listening. And if you could also subscribe and give us a review as well, um, we'd love to hear uh, feedback and we read all that stuff uh, in detail and we take it pretty seriously. So we appreciate any feedback you might have. So thank you all for listening. We look forward to our next episode every Wednesday. You can find new episodes on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and all the audio podcast platforms. In the meantime, hope you have a great week and we'll look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Thank you.